Our scripture this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. May God grant us ears to hear him speak as his word is opened and read and declared. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's so good to be with you all uh, during this whole thing. Um, I'm sure we're awkward in person, but it feels less awkward than on the screen. Uh, so it's good to be here in person. Uh, the, the whole time, there was never a time when I thought, man, I'm really excited to be in front of a camera. So you never heard that. Like, I heard a lot of people say, oh, this is great that we're with you. And I'm just like, it's not really that great. There's a lot about it that's not very great. Uh, we're thankful for the, the servants that helped make it possible. So uh, I, just Mark and DT, they have anything that you've been able to see, even today, has been because they've served selflessly. Uh, in many, many ways, giving up nights and weekends. So we're very thankful for the ways they've served. They're probably off serving right now, making sure everything's running well. Um, we're thankful for them, but we're thankful that we get to be together again. And we know that this is only a preview of what's to come one day. This is only the, the suburbs and the outskirts of our heavenly corporate worship, but we're, we're thrilled that we get to be a part of it. And with all that's going on all around us, it, it's, it would be nice to have a clear word, wouldn't it? I, including this pandemic, it'd be nice to have like, here's the source I can turn to that's going to give me some clarity on this issue, that has some authority to speak with some actual knowledge from all sorts of different places, that doesn't have some sort of angle, but, but can speak a clear word, an authoritative word. I, I've noticed over and over again, like, that would be really nice to have this source of information I could go to for some clarity, to figure out what's going on. Now, I know that wouldn't take the difficulty out of everything that's going on, but would it help direct us in good ways? The reality is that we just can't do that. On our text this morning, it would be really, really good if we had a clear word on, on some issues that are really, really tough. Right? The, the issue of, of marriage and divorce, remarriage, like these are really significant things. It would be really nice if we had a clear word. It'd be really nice if we had an authority to speak so that we could turn to and listen so that we could be directed and guided in the right kind of ways, knowing and trusting the voice that we're hearing from as both clear and authoritative. The reality is is that God has been kind enough to give us just that. Mark has written down for us this text from Jesus that gives us a clear word on marriage and divorce, and don't we need a clear word? 
I mean, it is devastated. It's been some good, and it's brought a lot of devastation as well. All the, the shrapnel from marriage and divorce and remarriage, like it's still flying all around us. And there's probably not one person that's not affected by all these things. Wouldn't it be nice to listen to one who has clarity? Wouldn't it be nice to listen to one who has authority? And Mark has shown us Christ, this authority, the Son of God. And Jesus gives a clear and authoritative word. And he points all disciples who have ears to hear to recognize the goodness of God and his design of marriage. So these clear and authoritative words, they don't take the difficulty out of all that surrounds marriage and divorce and remarriage. And by no means is difficulty removed, but at least we have a place to turn to and say, here's one who's spoken clearly, here's one who's spoken authoritatively, here's one we can listen to to guide us and direct us in the right kind of ways. We can trust him. And these words come out in an interesting context, through confrontation. It's interesting how God often uses confrontation and, and things that are difficult to Give us really good things, really good gifts. And here's one. Jesus speaks in the middle of confrontation. Chapter 10, verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark said they left there and they went to the region of Judea. In other words, it seems like they're moving towards Jerusalem. They, he's told them what is in, in that place for them. He's told them that he's going to be delivered over to, by men and tortured and killed. And that's where they're going. So they're going to Judea. That's the area kind of surrounding Jerusalem. They're moving closer that direction. And the crowds gathered to him again, as was his custom, and he taught them. And he's constantly teaching everywhere he goes. He's trying to help people that would come and listen. So he teaches them. But there are some that don't come just to listen. Verse 2 says the Pharisees came up in order to test him. And so they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? When we read test, we think like, oh, you're going to find out your, your knowledge. And that's not what they're doing when they're testing Jesus. When they're testing Jesus, they're trying to entrap him, ensnare him. They're trying to bring him down. They did the same thing in chapter 8, verse 11. They tested him. It's very much in the spirit that we saw in chapter 3 where they're in the synagogue and they're, trying to, they're watching Jesus closely so they can find something to accuse him for, so they can bring him down. That's what their testing is. Mark is alerting us to the reality that they don't really care about Jesus' answer to apply it to their lives so much. That's not their main motive. They're not trying to learn what the answer is so they can further honor, love, obey, and trust God. That's not why they're asking. They're trying to take Jesus down. You remember in Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist's ministry, he is uh, imprisoned because he was telling Herod Antipas that it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. In other words, John the Baptist got taken down because, and imprisoned because, he was saying something's immoral regarding marriage, remarriage, divorce. Perhaps that's what that test is trying to do here. The Pharisees are coming and testing him, so maybe we can lead to something like John the Baptist beheading. Their specific question on divorce could be an attempt to have that same outcome happen for Jesus as well. They ask it very specifically. We know chapter 3 verse 6 reminds us that the Pharisees were already working with the Herodians to bring down Jesus. They're already working together to destroy him. And this question fits right into that plot, trying to test Jesus. They're not trying to get his mental strength and, and get a barometer for it. They're not trying to uh, see if he can work his way out of this in a good way. They're not trying to get information. Their, their motives are much more sinister than that. And so they bring up this topic of divorce. It's a debatable topic among the Pharisees. Divorce was hotly debated in some camps. 
Perhaps they thought, even if Jesus isn't beheaded like John, maybe we can get him alienated from at least another big group so that we can have more dislike and unpopularity happen for Jesus. Because that's clearly what they want. So they want to make him less popular with whatever view he sides on. That's what they want. Now, in this debate that was ongoing between even the Pharisees, there was no debate on the lawfulness of divorce. There was widespread acceptance on the lawfulness of divorce. And that was based on Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be with his wife, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So right there, Deuteronomy 24, there's this law about divorce and and even some remarriage there. In other words, the, the law is written and it is assuming, Deuteronomy 24 is assuming divorce. And so the debate is not up with the Pharisees on the lawfulness of divorce. They're settled there. They're fine there. The the debate is on the grounds of divorce, on the why of divorce. And so that's why they asked Jesus. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, this kind of gets it a little bit more at the heart of their question. Mark doesn't include this, but it's certainly there in their intent. They said, should we get a divorce for any cause, any reason? That's what they're getting at with their question. It's not just about divorce. Like, can you get... It's about for any reason. The debate is about the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Verse 1 in Deuteronomy 24 says that man could divorce for some indecency, something shameful, something displeasing. And and the, the debate is about, well, what's that? What is that phrase? What does that mean? And there are two camps, essentially, two dominant camps among the Pharisees, and among the Jews at the time. The conservative camp would say that something morally shameful would be like adultery or, or an absolute failure to keep the law of God. It would be like a, a morally shameful thing. Now, there was another camp that was a more moderate camp. They thought, yeah, sure, something morally shameful, but it could also be anything displeasing, anything that would be embarrassing, anything that would be even annoying, so when they come and, and when Matthew says in 19.3 that it's for any cause, that's really the heart of their question. The Mishnah, which is the authoritative for them, Jewish oral tradition that was passed down, here's what it said on divorce. It said that he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. That was from the moderate camp. So even if a woman had spoiled a dish, anything annoying, anything displeasing, they could get a certificate of divorce from their husband. That was the dominant camp of the day. That was what was written in their oral tradition, written down for them, and that was the stronger camp. And so when when they ask this question, we're seeing this question through our cultural eyes. You have to see it through these eyes that are going on. Two dominant camps, and here's the one that's, that's primarily moving forward at the time. Any reason, any cause, anything displeasing, anything annoying, write her a certificate of divorce. So all of this 
different views, differing views, political tension possibly. They're trying to stir up the Herodians and, and maybe get Herod's gaze to, to come on Jesus to take him out. The religious pressure to, to fit on one side or another. The, the theological questions surrounding this. All of those are staring down the barrel at Jesus when he's asked this question. And that's where we get to see Jesus' brilliance. His, his perfection at work. His, his goodness and his authority as he responds clearly to his opponents. Verse 3, he answers them. He says, well, what, is, what did Moses command you? Doesn't turn them to their views. He doesn't say, what does the Mishnah say? He says, what does Moses command? Verse 4, they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they appeal to Deuteronomy 24, where divorce is, again, it's assumed and regulated. In other words, it's, there's a law about it. It's not necessarily and definitely not encouraged or commanded. It is assumed and regulated. And it's a command. It's a, it's a law that's for the good of divorcees. It's, it's trying to help protect from injustices, trying to limit the sinfulness so it doesn't keep going even further. It's trying to decrease the, the consequences that come from the breaking of marriage. And so their answer is not wrong. Their appeal to Deuteronomy is not wrong. But here's what they're doing with the text is they're taking liberties with it. One author says it well, I think, when he says, what was intended to be a barrier against license, some of the Pharisees had turned into a bridge to easy divorce. And so they answer Jesus' question interestingly. They answer with what's permitted And they draw a comfortable line, one that they can fit into easily. They're not thinking, where's the line so I can be as holy as possible? They're thinking, where's the line so I can fit comfortably into it? And I wonder how many of us know that struggle. Like, I know the speed limit, and here's what I don't do with it. I almost never say the speed limit's 65, I'll go 63. Most of the time, I'll say the speed limit is 65. That allows me to go 67. Because I don't want to be a legalist, so I don't have to go 65, right? But, but notice that I, I've noticed that my, my sinful heart will always go in the direction that I want it to. I'll make the line comfortable for where I'm at with it, not for the letter of the law. And so I, I work it in ways that work out well for me, and then I get mad at someone that's going under the speed limit that I have to pass. And here's the thing is that we like to obey on our terms and then somehow try to figure out how to slap God's approval on that, if we can. We're like the Pharisees in that way. It's why we like to look for lines. We want to know how far we can go so that we don't really mess it up, but we don't want to know how can we be holy, how can we honor God, how can we love him with all of our heart. We want to know how far can we go and not disobey And in doing this, what we're doing is we're taking the law of God, his word, and we're separating it from his character, something that we should not do. Because if we're not going to obey to honor and love and worship God, then we're saying that what he has commanded is actually not good and doesn't flow from someone who actually looks out for our best. That's what the Pharisees did. They separated the law of God from the nature of God, the character of God, something, again, that cannot be done. They're saying, we'll just obey what we want to, fit comfortably in there, not because we want to love and honor God. In other words, they're not seeing him as good and holy and righteous. They're doing what they want. It's a difficult question, but still, they come at it from an angle. 
They don't come up and beg Jesus, like, we want to do what's right. We want to fully honor you in regards to divorce and remarriage and all this stuff. Like, help us. Tell us about divorce. It's not what they're doing. They're trying to fit something into their worldview in a way that's comfortable for them. They'd miss the intent. Deuteronomy 24 is a passage of description, not prescription. It's a passage of concession by God. That's what Jesus says. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. He's permitting it. He's not saying this is what you should do. He's describing here's what's going to happen, not prescribing. It's a a passage of concession. Jesus tells us, here's why Deuteronomy 24 was, was written. It's a regulation because of hardened hearts. Hardened against what? In the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh often is described as heart, as being hardened. Hardened against what? What God wanted. Hardened against God's word, his ways, his people. In Psalm 95, they said, don't harden your hearts, Israelites, as they did at Meribah. Their hearts were hard. What were they hard against? They were hard against the Lord, against his words, against his ways. They didn't trust God. That's what they're hardened against. A hard heart is a a heart that is hardened against the Lord, against his words, against his ways. It doesn't see the Lord as good, as gracious, as loving, as holy, and so it doesn't trust him. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, this was written for those past Israelites' hardened hearts. That's true, right? He doesn't say that. He makes them own it. Your hardness of heart. He assumes that this, there's this ongoing sin nature, this ongoing sin problem that has affected all hearts that is making them hard in some ways. Hardened hearts then are not some sort of past problem that we're done with and we can move on from. They're present. They're in us. They haven't gone away by, by excessive rabbinical teaching, by, well, we've increased a lot in our knowledge of the world up until this day of the Pharisees, and so hardened hearts have been kind of taken out because we know the heart doesn't actually get hard. It pumps you. Know. Heart is the same. It's sinful. It's hard. And Jesus has them own it. And those are the hearts that Jesus is addressing here. Not with a different interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't do that. He does something different. Look at what he does. He points to God's intent in the beginning. Verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So they went back to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus goes back a little bit further, all the way back to the very beginning, so that before there was sin, and he tells them God's intent, God's design. It says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus, and he's asked a question on divorce, doesn't speak on divorce primarily, does he? He goes to marriage, and it's designed from the beginning. A very good beginning, where you remember that God looked out on everything that he had created, and it was good. He creates, and it's good. He creates, and it's good. He looks out at something and says, this is not good here. What was it? It wasn't good that man be alone. And so what does he do? He makes woman out of man, takes the side of man, and makes a woman a a helper suitable for him. So he makes male and female image bearers made to complement one another. And then he walks the first bride down the aisle, presents her to the groom, to his great joy and pleasure. He starts rejoicing that at last, out of all these things that God has created that are good, there's someone that's made like me, woman. And so that leads to marriage. 
leaving and cleaving. That's God's design. God designed marriage to be one woman and one man who unite as one. And they unite in every way. Not just some ways. We don't just give a piece of ourselves. We unite as one. So the two become one. There's not, I'm I'm giving some of myself, but I'm going to hold these other parts back. That's not the design. God designed two to become one, and they go together. Nothing is held back from the other because that's the way God intended. And that intent is for permanence. Verse 9, he even says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in light of God's creation of male and female, of his design for marriage, his design for joining two together, and his work for joining those two together, doesn't this divorce talk seem a little bit in different light? It's a little bit contrarian. It's speaking of the ripping, not of the intent. For the Pharisees then to, when asked by Jesus to respond of of what do they think, what does Moses command, to lean on a text about divorce separated from and apart from God's design and intent for marriage was the wrong emphasis. And Jesus shifts it back from the law written because of hardness of hearts to all the way back to God's holy and good design for marriage. A sorely needed shift because their hearts were hard. They completely left out in this discussion as Jesus taught to them the book of Genesis, the beginning, before there was even sin and God's intent for marriage. Maybe they thought at this point like the law has superseded all that because God's intent and design are so marred by sin that now we need the law. And so we're going to lean on that and neglect the other. But what Jesus does is he pushes back on them. Now it's some sort of different interpretation. He doesn't try to, well, let's look at Deuteronomy 24 from a different line. He doesn't do that. He moves them all the way back to creation design. He says, let's look at this. Let's look at the intent and design from God. One commentator says that, in other words, a proper understanding of God's prior intentions in Genesis 1 and 2 should have alerted them to the fact that the later Deuteronomy 24 was not about what constituted a pious divorce but rather about regulating the unacceptable problem that occasioned it in the first place. They're wrong in their emphasis, and Jesus is trying to pull them back. And while the Pharisees ask about grounds for divorce, Jesus speaks of the goodness of God's original design. Sin-hardened hearts can so easily miss God's good design. And just look for other things and find them. And then they want to talk about those other things. The Pharisees, they want to talk divorce. Jesus wants to talk marriage and its design. They want to talk about what's permitted. Jesus wants to talk, talk about permanence. They want to look at the limits and the line and draw it in comfortable places for them. Jesus wants to look at the goodness of the beauty and the beauty of God's good design in the beginning. This is a different focus, a different emphasis. And the way they're acting, the way they're emphasizing things, we can still miss what they miss and miss the original intent and design. Think about this. What rushes into your head when you think of marriage and divorce? What comes to your mind? Is it God's original intent? My guess is that what comes up is all sorts of memories, millions of them all at the same time, right? And we're just trying to pick out which one we can think about. Some of them are good. Some of them are horrible. Some of you think back on some of the trauma that's happened in your life. Or you think in your own marriage of the many imperfections that exist there. And if we look to the past, all of us could probably find all of those things in our past regarding marriage and divorce. Whether you're married, not married, or whatever. You're going to find all of those things. But we're mistaken if we don't look back further than that. Whether we're married or not. If we 
when we think about marriage, we don't look back even further than all of our memories, all the way back to the good beginning, then we miss out on God's goodness and his design. If we don't look all the way back to the beginning, we miss the foundational piece, the piece that Jesus wants to build on. When he's talking about marriage and divorce, where does he take them? The, the foundation, the design and intent from God. God's good design is important to us. It matters because it points us to a good creator, God. That's why, you know, in the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 13 to let marriage be held in honor among all. It wasn't a command for the married people. It was a command for everybody. Why? Because God designed marriage. And we think he designed it good. And so his design of marriage and the way marriage works not only points to a marriage specifically, but it points to God. So everybody's invested in this. It matters to everybody what God did here because it's reflecting his goodness and his design. It reflects his glory, his grace. And so when we think about marriage, we have to think about that design and the goodness of God. Yes, it's right for us to consider the fall and sin nature and to not ignore the, the past as part of our story in all this, but we need to look back even further than our past and not neglect the good design and creation from God. Now, here's what's obvious to everybody, is that once we do that, that doesn't take the difficulty out of whatever we're in right now. It doesn't take away all those, that rush of memories that comes to your mind of trauma or imperfections. It doesn't take any of that away. So that's why I'm thankful that Jesus speaks a little bit further to people that, that aren't trying to test him and bring him down. In verse 10, he's with his disciples, and his disciples are asking him further about this matter. And in verse 11, he says, well, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and, not, and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus doesn't lower the bar like, well, I'm glad we're through with the test of the Pharisees, so now I'm with you, like, I'll really tell you what's going on. Like, no, the standard is super high still. Because remember, God is working off of, Jesus is working off the foundational piece of marriage is designed from the beginning before there was sin that has messed it up. And he's trying to carry that good design out in present life and have his disciples do the exact same thing. And so he says, one who divorces and remarries is committing adultery. Now in Matthew 19, the, the parallel passage, Jesus gives an exception clause. He says, if anyone divorces and remarries, commits adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality. And to this, I think Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 7, the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. But remember the background here, that most of them approved of divorce for any reason, any cause. Even if she spoiled some food, we can divorce and move on. But Jesus is combating that kind of thing in his answer here. He's combating that kind of thing with his disciples. Can you divorce for any reason? Jesus is saying, no, if you divorce and remarry, that's adultery. He's combating not just that one exception that he gave in Matthew 19. He's combating this for any cause, because he knows that hard hearts can and will look for any reasons to get their way. And if there is a reason, they will take it. It will be used. And so Jesus addresses and calls disciples to holiness by warning them of divorce just for any old reason, that that can lead to remarriage, it just leads to adultery. I mean, all these things are in here, and he upholds this high standard. The priority for Jesus is changing the playing field where any old reason isn't a category at all. And instead, we take as the foundational piece God's design for marriage and its goodness from the beginning. The intended design of marriage is a design of permanence, cutting off avenues for seeking out something else. That was from the beginning, before there was sin. And so Jesus' answer here is sobering and seems very hard. 
but it shouldn't be surprising. And Jesus has already called his disciples, deny yourselves, take up your cross, die. If you're going to follow me, come and die. So these words and this call to holiness and the way we live our lives include how we conduct our marriages shouldn't be surprising to us. But, but notice and remember what, what happens when we deny ourselves. What happens when we take up our cross and lose our lives for Jesus' sake? What did he say? Oh, that's when you actually find it. And you lose your life for my sake, you actually, you save it. Now, we should expect no different from following Jesus here. We should expect no different from following Jesus' high standards for, for marriage and divorce and remarriage. Because the one who says them designed this thing, and he's really good, and he's expressing his goodness in its design, and he knows how it's supposed to look. And so we know that when he says, if you're going to lose your life for my sake, you're going to follow after me, it's actually going to be for your sake. He knows how life works best. And he calls his people to holiness in marriage, to self-denial, and he does so as the good designer. He knows how it works. He was there when it started, and he lovingly calls us to follow it. God's design, including his design for marriage, shows us his heart. And not just his heart for marriage, shows us his heart, his goodness, his graciousness. And his heart is good enough to seek and save those who are lost. His heart is good enough to come to heal the sick, those who are broken and wounded. He comes after them. Maybe they're broken and wounded and sick from marriage and divorce and remarriage, and the Savior has come. That's how good he is. See, Jesus' very life and ministry are this large exclamation point showing that God loves those who stand hard-hearted against his design. He loves those enough who even kick against his goodness in any and every way. He loves us enough to have even have people come to him have, having sinned regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he has come in the middle of all of that. In other words, none of those things have somehow disqualified us from the love of God. None of the hardness of our hearts or our kicking against God's goodness or even all of our failures of divorce and remarriage and sexual immorality that exists among us, none of those have disqualified us from God's love. He came. He ministered. He spoke. He loved. Jesus has already told us what can disqualify us. In chapter 3, verse 28, he said, All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, except for what? Like this blasphemy of the Spirit. We talked about that in chapter 3. You can look back there. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, except, there's an exception clause, but look what's before it. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. There's not one sin that Jesus says, well, now this disqualifies you. So whenever we bring up our past into all of this that Jesus is talking about in this high call to holiness and deny yourself, and here's what it looks like, we're not disqualified by what we bring in. All sin will be forgiven the children of man. Hard-heartedness, sins in marriage, divorce, remarriage, aren't the unforgivable sin. So there's no need to wear some sort of proverbial scarlet letter A or any sin around so long as we'll take all that we have to the one who can wash all of our crimson stains white as snow. And the one who can do that, who is willing to do that, who died to do that is one worth trusting. He's good. 
Let's recognize the goodness of, of God's good design of marriage. Let's know that it reflects his goodness. And as we recognize that, let's fold our lives under his good design. He can be trusted. He's good. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this is a difficult text. And we have hard hearts, and so we need your mercy to help us. Thank you for being a merciful God. Thank you for loving us and giving us your word to instruct and direct us. We needed a clear and authoritative word, and you have given it. Would you help us to follow it? Would you bless the reading and teaching and hearing and receiving of your word this morning? It's in Christ's name.